0: to for the high holidays yai <laughs> die it I nine, I I I I, I got that now. Hit di da, eh da, eh Hee rai rai da yada da rai da rai rai da da rai da rai 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 da 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 rai 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 one more time, friends. I died, I died, I die, he die, I die, I die. It died, I die, I die, I die, I die, I I die, I die, I die, I die, I I die, I die, I
1: Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you, thank you, for joining me in the nigun. I uh, I've been feeling that that nigun pretty deep lately, and uh, the power of positive affirmations. We live in a world with um, negative reinforcement, negative reinforcements all around us. We are inadequate. Um, the world is broken. The world is burning. There is chaos and division, and we can um, internalize that stuff and feel like we are bad, the world is bad, people around us are bad. Uh, Really negative thinking and to realign ourselves and observe our experience, observe the experience we're having, and on a deeper level feel the spiritual joy that comes with the deeper purpose of our lives and that we are measured not by what we do, but by who we are, who we are, each of us created in the image of God. So um, I know we lost a bunch of folks for this one because of the time change, Um, so they're going to catch up on the recording. So I do apologize, the next three weeks, this week and the next two weeks, we will be starting at 11, uh, 11 uh, out here in the West. Those who are joining in other time zones, that would be 2 Eastern, Uh, but then we will go back after three weeks, back to the 10 a.m. slot. So uh, just some scheduling difficulties there. So I thank you all for those of you who were able to adjust to be with us in this time zone. So friends, here we go. Here we go. And actually, hi, Barbara. I know that Barbara, you were able to join now because it is 11. So we'll get Barbara for three sessions. And some of you also can join more easily. So um, so friends, Merakid. We're going to talk about Merakid. As always, we have different relationships to the Lamed Tet Malachot. We're not saying anything prescriptive here around how we should live our Shabbat life. There's lots of different ways to think about Shabbat, but rather using it as a jump-off point for some deeper philosophical and Jewish uh, Jewish values ideas, and then we're going to grapple with your questions, thoughts, um, so that we can you know generate some 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 ideas together. So here we go. We're already in the ninth malacha, the ninth malacha, the ninth dimension of work, where we look at the process of sifting, sifting, merakade which mirrors the sifting that was done in the tabernacle when flour was readied to to make bread or when a sifting-like action was done in the herb preparation process. Herb or herb, whichever you prefer. The malacha encompasses sifting or straining using a sieve or a filter. In modern Shabbat observance, traditionally, one might traditionally avoid making coffee with a French press or straining excess salad dressing from salad This uh, malacha, like the other malachot, uh, concerns separation. It um, is about removing the undesirable from the desirable, like we've talked about in the past. In the case of this particular malacha, the separation is put into effect specifically by the use of a utensil, as opposed to what we saw earlier around using the wind or using one's hand. Stepping back to observe the fact that sifting is just one among many other agricultural processes reminds us to be grateful for how labor-intensive food production truly is. Here's a cool Talmudic passage we're going to look at from Brachot, Brachot, which you should see on your screen here about Benzoma. Yeah. So um, um, here's what Benzoma says. What happened, what they say about Benzoma. Benzoma saw a multitude of Jews while he was standing on a step of the Temple Mount. He said the Bracha. Blessed is the sage of the secrets. And then he recites, blessed, you know, there's the whole bracha that we know, baruch atah Hashem, blah, 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 who created all those who serve me. Um, And then it goes on to explain, he used to say, how many exertions did Adam, the first person, make until he found bread to eat? he plowed, he sowed, he reaped, he gathered, he threshed, he winnowed, he selected, he ground, he sifted, he kneaded, he baked, and afterwards he ate the bread. But I, Benzoma, rise early in the morning and find all these laborers prepared for me. Now, you could read this as arrogant, right? He's standing on the temple mount being like, oh, those low commoners, those workers, they are here to serve me so I can just eat my bread. But the other way to read it, and it doesn't have to be one or the other, is a gratitude blessing. He's like, wow, these workers do all these things that I'm removed from, right? I think about the necessary workers that we talk about today, farm workers and the like. And I just go to the store and buy bread or today, if you're like me, you just open your front door um, after you made an online purchase and it's just sitting there um, if it hasn't spoiled in the heat already over the last hour, it was sitting there already. Right. And you're like, Oh my goodness, Baruch Hashem. like I could just open my door and the bread there. Of course you had to get the money from your work. You had to go online and order it. You had to open the door. You got to quickly get it in your freezer or whatever. Right. But it's like an amazing thing. And to, to step back and look at these processes that emerge. And this is one way to think about, um, about the modern economy and the interconnected global marketplace um, that actually we can fill ourselves with gratitude for the hidden dimensions that produces what we bring to our table and not only feel spiritual joy by that and empathy through our interconnectivity, but also a responsibility for all those who are involved in such a production process. Okay, let's keep going to our next source. Now, of course, sifting is helpful not only in an agricultural process, but also in helping us find a lost object. This is from the Rambam, from Maimonides. He says, when a person sees a dinar, that's a, that's a currency, fall from a colleague into, a, into sand or into dust and escape the colleague's vision, it is as if it fell into the sea or into a river and it belongs to the finder. For the owner despairs of its recovery. It's called the yeoush. is a traditional category, which means they have despaired that they will ever find it again, since it does not have a mark by which it can be identified. Even if the person saw the original owner bring a sifter, right? Here, sifting, to search for the lost dinar, the owner is considered to have given up hope. He is searching out of wishful thinking as would other seekers who search in the dust, although they, they have not lost anything, and the hope that they will find what someone else has lost. The owner is searching in, in, in such a manner, it is not that he has not despaired of the recovery of his money. So um, so here we see the idea of Hashavat Aveda, that in the mitzvah of Hashavat Avedah, returning lost objects, we are to, any case, anytime something has a clear identification, there is a watch with an engraved name in it. There is an object which is unique. We should do all we can to find the owner. But if there is an object which could never be identifiable with an owner, you find a $20 bill in the street. There's no way to claim unless the person put their name on it or something, or can claim my dollar bill said X, Y, and Z and a marker on it, right? That it is actually theirs, but rather it is something that um, we can put into the category of yay, oosh, of despair. One will never find what was distinctly theirs. Um, this emerges around, you know, you see you see these feel-good stories like once a year, there's a homeless fellow And someone dropped their engagement ring into the homeless fellow's cup. And next time the homeless fellow sees this person, he runs over and gives them back the ring. These amazing stories of people going to great lengths to return lost objects to people. Um, Nonetheless, this idea of sifting, this idea that Maimonides brings here of sifting through objects, Um, in order to identify that which is lost. If you think about the beach, on the beach, there's the guy with the uh, metal detector, right? Um, Or the process we might go through um, as a form of sifting. So we can wonder, however, whether we should act lifnim mishuratadin. Lifnim mishretedin means above the letter of the law by returning an article that has been so thoroughly lost by its owner that the owner cannot sift through a world of objects to locate it right? We might say, okay, it is beyond the amount of time that's reasonable that they should expect to find it, and it's unidentifiable. And yet, what would it look like to go beyond the letter of the law that we have done our process of sifting, and we find something that we can still somehow get to someone who may have lost it? The way we search for lost objects help us to think about how we we all view the world around us. We hold within ourselves notions of subjectivity, to avoid viewing the world outside ourselves as a conglomeration of objects upon with with which we act with attention only to our own interests. At the same time, we can also ask how people might themselves undergo a kind of sifting process. In particular, we can consider how we distinguish or sift those people with whom we have an affinity from quote unquote, the other. How can we, how can we, excuse me, how often do we judge others? Do we engage in racial profiling in a destructive way to let most pass through the gates but filter out others who look more suspicious to us? Indeed, do we go so far as to sift with a a utensil as the halachot of Merakeid tell us not to do on Shabbat in some sense, when we help perpetuate systems to differentiate among people unfairly leading to systemic racism? Are we similarly at fault when we succumb to the inherent racism that we all must recognize in ourselves? Here's an interesting verse I saw in the book of Amos, in the book of Amos, in the Tanakh. It says over there, Amos 9.9, 9, for I will give the order and shake the house of Israel through all the nations as one shakes sand in a sieve and not a pebble falls to the ground. So here, in, a, in what we might identify as a problematic fashion, we similarly see the idea of sifting as a form of punishment or filtering out the sinful from the pure. Here we might see, and we can understand historically why this would be the case through persecution and oppression and anti-Semitism, why the house of Israel is pure and um, the other nations are impure, and God is going to use the sieve to sift out um, sift out the house of Israel from the nations, right? Some hold a notion of Jewish supremacy in a messianic era in their theology that God will bring the pure Israelites um, to, um, uh, you know, to their their place of hierarchy. And the, uh, the goyim, the nations will be sifted through and thus punished for their lack of recognition of the Jewish truth. Now, I think we can have a very healthy vision of potentially of Jewish chosenness, a potential potentially healthy notion of Jewish ideas being the ones that resonate most deeply or even be the most true theologically. Maybe you don't agree with what I just said, but we can still hold such beliefs that there are ideas in the, in, in the marketplace of ideas that we um, hold to be more true. We're not relativists in our ideas. And yet, not condemn other nations or other faiths or hold that they are sinful um, and need to be proven true by God. And so this notion of Amos here, you can imagine being very therapeutic in a history of oppression where Jews are are considered to be sinners for believing what we believe uh, and understand that there will be a, a theological rectification to come without it leading to such an extreme. Now let's get into some Kabbalah. Who's ready for Kabbalah? So here we see Some positivity in the act of using a sieve, as opposed to the negativity we just saw. Okay, so profiling or the idea of sinners. Let's look at the positive idea of sifting, because that's always what we're doing here. The positive and negatives in the concept. It's never one way. So in the writings of the Kabbalist Rabbi Yehuda Ashlag, if you haven't read any Ashlag, check him out. He's a really interesting guy around Tikkun Olam, how he uses that in a mystical sense. Here's what Ashilag has to say about the idea of the creator positively sifting through humans, right? We just saw uh, a potentially negative idea of God sifting through humans. There's the pure and the impure. There's the sinners and the non-sinners in a binary fashion. Here's Ashilag. And this is the key to an understanding of the incapacity of so-called world reformers. I love that idea. The world reformers. Mitakne olam, right? Those who engage in tikkun olam, the Metakne olam, the world reformers that arose through the generations. For they saw a human being in the image of a machine that is not working properly and needs repair. They need a tikkun. This means to remove the corrupted parts and replace them with others that are fixed. Metukanim. And that is the whole tendency of these world reformers, to eradicate anything bad and harmful in the human species. And the truth is, were it not that the creator was standing against them, they would certainly have already enough time to sift humanity like a sieve and to leave only what is good and useful. But because the creator watches over all the elements of the divine creation with such great care, no allowance is made to destroy a single thing in God's domain but only to turn it and transform it to be good. This is a really important idea in Kabbalah and, in, and later in Hasidut, that God creates everything for a purpose. Nothing can be destroyed from that divine creation. It can only be turned and transformed to good. This goes back to the idea we keep talking about, that there's no, no such thing as a bad emotion Every emotion is valid. If you've engaged in therapy, you know, you probably are familiar with this idea that every emotion is valid. It's just the emotion that we sit with, that we hold, right, that we emerges for us. We don't need to label it as a, as a bad emotion. Rather, it exists there. We see it. We name it. We observe it. We hold it. And then, Kabbalah, we turn it and we transform it. We own it rather than allow it to own us. We hold it rather than be held by it. So too here as well, and trying to repair the world. There is human nature. We can't destroy human nature. Some people think we can. Um, but rather, we can turn it and transform it and channel it. Curious if you, if you want to disagree later when we get to chatting about this. Indeed, it is not only Shabbat that reminds us of the work of sifting, but looking up at the moon does as well. Whoa, how do we get to the moon? My kids love the moon. We look at the moon. They always want to know, why is it big today? Why is it small the next day? You know, um, why does it look this shape and that? It's, just, it's awesome, and it's awe-inspiring. So if you're not familiar with the process of Kiddush Levana, here we're going to look at the Talmud. Around Kiddush Levana, let me say something before you read that. Around Kiddush Levana, Kiddush Levana is sanctifying the new moon. Um, and let me read this, and then I will unpack it. Rav Acha ben Hanina. Also said in the name of Rav Asi, in Rav Yochanan's name, until what day of the month may the benediction over the new moon be recited? Until its concavity, is that how you pronounce that? Concavity is filled up. And how long is that? Rev Yaakov Ben-Edi said in, in Rev Yehuda's name, I love that. They love to quote each other because it, it says in the Talmud that if you give credit to someone for the idea you're quoting, you, you help to bring the Messianic era. You don't just have the chutzpah that every idea is yours. You quote people. Who did you hear this from? So they're always quoting each other. Seven days, they he says, in the name of him, in the name of him. Then the Hardian said, 16 days. Now, both agree with Rev Yochanan, but the one... But the one explains it as meaning until it is like a strung bow. The other until it's like a sieve. That's why, I, that's why I brought this idea here because it's another case in the Talmud of applying the notion of a sieve when the moon looks like a sieve. So here's an interesting idea, by the way, the difference between Sephardic cues and Ashkenazic Jews. I suspect we all know the difference, but just as a reminder, Ashkenazic Jews are folks well, I guess we can identify it by color as well. What we de- generally think of as white Jews, Jews who come from Eastern Europe or really most of Europe, um, and um, have the dominant narrative of the Shoah and the Holocaust, and then the Aliyah from from European oppression into Israel or into America, and then there's the narr- and then there's the Spartan Jews who are Spanish or Eastern. Um, excuse me, North African or Mediterranean, um, oftentimes Jews of color, Jews of color. Of course, there's other Jews of color who might not necessarily be Sephardic in their origin. And there's a lot to say about that. And Sephardic Jews in the tradition tend to bring more subjectivity into uh, qualitative measurement. Um, Ashkenazic Jews tend to be much more quantitative. That's for various reasons. The Mediterranean region tends to be more poetic, more artistic. Um, again, these are overgeneralizations, but if you look at the ideas that emerge from such regions, um, Ashkenazic Jews or, or Europe in general tended to emerge more philosophically, more mathematically, more in, in the ideas of systems rather than just in the realm of experience. And so do we, do we say that we can bless the moon up to a certain number of days or do we use a shape? to identify it. Now, of course, this idea predates the cultural uh, differentiation of Ashkenazic and Sephardic, But the idea there is an interesting question. Do I stop blessing the new moon based on the shape of the moon or based on the number of days? So anyways, here's basically how it falls down in Ashkenazic tradition, that you can bless the new moon starting on the third day of the new month, right? We're in Elul now. And so the third of Elul, you can start blessing the new moon because it's big enough. And you can do that up until the 15th. Which is when you have a full moon, so you want to be in that zone of, of, um, of the moon increasing in size but not yet a full moon, and so here they're talking about the strung bow or the sieve. Anyways, interesting stuff, and I love this bracha. If you don't do it, try it out. Go outside on a on a night where it's not yet a full moon, uh, before the the middle of the month, and look at the moon, feel the awe of the creation, then and then engage in the chidush, in the chidush, the kiddush the, the Levinas, sanctifying the, the process of, of renewal in our lives and, and our relationship of our personal renewal to the renewal of the cosmos. Okay, keep going. I'm sorry, sometimes my presentation is like 10 minutes and sometimes it's like 25, 30 minutes. So I've got a lot to share today. So some people love longer presentations, some people love longer conversation. So um, apologize if you're in the mode of uh, shorter presentations. Um, Okay, here we go. Also, the Shemitah year, the sabbatical year, again, I advocate that everyone should get a sabbatical year (laughs) to rejuvenate with their family and their learning. Um, I I, I don't think I'm going to win that one. But if I won't win that, then I advocate that every post-college student should spend a year in service. Mandatory year in service. Go serve in the army, go serve in the Peace Corps, go serve in America, or go teach in in an underserved school. We should should require require a year of service. If you disagree with me, let me know also. I would love to hear your thought on that, but I would love to rebuild a culture of service in America. Okay, also, so the Shemitah year and the justice-focused message in, in the traditions that come with the idea of the Shemitah year, are very relevant to how we think about a sieve as well. Here we have a source we're going to look at from Gittin. Here's from Gittin. This is kind of a weird source, but I'm bringing sources where, where the idea of a sieve plays out or sifting comes out in different ways. A woman may lend to her neighbor, suspected of transgressing the sabbatical law year law, a fine sieve or a coarse sieve or a handmill or an oven, but she must not sift nor grind with her. I'm sure you all have this dilemma every week. Your neighbor knocks on the door. Remember the olden days when people would knock on your door asking for an egg? I know as a kid that happened all the time. I don't know if we change. Maybe that still happens to you. But I don't know if we change how we think about uh, neighbors or if we change how we think about eggs. Um, But in the good old days, people, we would knock on each other's doors for eggs. (laughs) Um, So anyways, they knock on your door. You ever have this problem every week? They knock on your door for a sieve. They need to borrow your sieve. The, so you can lend it, but you can't sift with them, it says over here in the Talmud. The wife of a fellow may loan to the wife of an illiterate man <laughs> a fine sieve or a coarse sieve, and she may winnow or grind or sift with her. But when she pours out the water, she must not touch it with her, because they must not assist such a com- such as commit transgression. Um, and all these have have they enjoined for the sake of peace. And they may encourage Gentiles in the sabbatical year, but not Jews, and they may offer them greetings for the sake of peace. (laughs) So this is, again, all this Talmudic stuff, it's really hard sometimes to understand in our modern terms, but they're dealing here with complicity. If you have a justice principle that we're going to let workers rest for a year, we're going to let the land rest for a year, we're going to let animals rest for a year, what do you do when your neighbor doesn't abide by that? When are you complicit, morally complicit, Jewishly complicit, by assisting them in their process of continuing to go about business as usual, when we're trying to create a national ethos of unification, what do we do when everyone will take the vaccine? to get herd immunity and one person won't. What do we do when that happens? When the nation of Israel wants to embrace a sabbatical year and there's people who won't do that. When we're trying to combat racism, but there are people who will not comply and will even speak out publicly against those who who name it, who name it and want to tear down the agitators uh, who want to name the corruptions and the evils that we see in society. What do we do with such tensions? And so there's those who say, live and let live. It's a libertarian ethos. Let everyone do as they please. And there's others that say, yes, live and let live, but I won't be complicit in what they're doing. Here, so here they're struggling with, okay, I, I will do this with my neighbor for the sake of peace. I'm going to lend them this, but I can't do it with them because that's too complicit. I want to be a good neighbor. I'm not going to protest them, but I also am not going to participate in what they're doing. So this is interesting. We're all going to have different conclusions. Of how to be a good neighbor, how to be, where does Jewish unity stop and personal integrity begin, right? Where does Jewish pluralism stop? And my personal, you know, ideology sticks in. I know people who feel, I am egalitarian. I will not pray in a synagogue where women are not treated equally. That's a limit on my pluralism. That's an absolute for me. I know others who say, I will only pray in a place where people are observant of the Shabbat, and I will not pray in a place where that's not a value, and that's the limit on their pluralism. So everyone's navigating these tensions. Okay, let's keep going. Rabbi Nachman Nachman of Breslov thinks about sifting in our internal obligations to work on the spiritual side of our psyche. So now we're moving from the Talmud to the spiritual psychic realm of our, of our spiritual work. Here's what Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says in Lakute Maharan: In just the same way, you must carry on searching until you find another good point. Okay, we quoted this idea last week, but we quoted it uh, on a surface level, so I want to actually share it. He's talking about someone who's in a very lowly state, they're very depressed, and how they, through their own spiritual work, can pull themselves out. Here's what he says. In just the same way, you must carry on searching until you find another good point. Even if you feel that this good point is also full of flaws, you must still search for some good in it. And so you must continue finding more and more good points. This is how songs are made. So let's give an example. I'm a terrible parent. I'm a terrible parent. I'm a terrible Jew. He says, whoa, 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 that is a thought error. You need to observe your experience and step away. And yes, Yes, of course you're a flawed parent. Of course you're a flawed Jew. Of course we're flawed in everything we do. We're human beings. But step away. See all the good you did or do as a parent. See all the good you do as a Jew or as a human. Step, see all the good in yourself. Don't fall into the thought error of saying, I'm always, I'm never, I'm bad. In essence, music is made by sifting the good from the bad. He says, sifting, sifting the good from the bad. The musician has to find the good spirit and reject the bad. A musical instrument is basically a vessel containing air. The musician produces the sounds by causing the air to vibrate. Their task is to move their hands on the instrument in such a way as to produce good spirit, good vibrations, while avoiding the bad vibrations, the dissonant winds of gloom and depression. When a person refuses to allow themselves to fall into despair, but instead give themselves new life by finding and gathering their positive points. This makes melodies. They can then pray and give thanks to God. He says we, we turn away from God because we feel inadequate. We feel low about ourselves, but we can start to pray. We can start to sing by joining together these musical notes, by joining together this spirit Brian Wilson was a Kabbalist, by joining together this spirit of goodness, which again, doesn't look past flaws. We're in the month of Elul and Teshuvah. We want to work on our flaws, but part of the way we work on our flaws is by positive affirmations binding ourselves of our goodness, the goodness of the world. We can't just read the news that says the world is terrible, the world is burning, or we can't just read our detractors that say, oh, you don't agree with me here, you're awful, right? Or our inner detractors that say, I am inadequate, I'm not good enough. We have to find the good, build from the good, right? And do that for our partners, for our friends, for our family members, point out the good in them, help them to build this good. Let's keep going. We're almost to the end here. Rav Cook deals with sifting in regard to how we think about our ideas, our beliefs in particular. He says, Knesset Yisrael, which means the community of the Jewish people, is the distilled essence of all existence. And in this world, with this distillation, is devolved into the Israelite nation, truly in its materiality and spirituality, its generations and faith. And the Israelite history is the idealized distillation of general history. And there is no movement in the world, in all the peoples, whose like is not to be found in Israel. And its faith is the sifted essence of all beliefs, all the source from which idealism and the good flow to all the beliefs, and thus necessarily the force which distinguishes among belief concepts until it brings them to the level of clear speech, so that all may call out in the name of God and your redeemer, the Holy one of Israel will be called Lord of all the earth. So here we see Rav Cook dabbling in the idea we saw earlier, a problematic idea of sifting such that um, it leads to um, a hierarchy where Jews are on top, but we know from Rav Cook's universalism that he rejects that and knows there's good in all. And yet he thinks here, what some might call ethno, centric fashion, but I think we can see a deeper layer here that we as Jews should feel proud and see that our faith is the sifted essence of all beliefs, which are connected to all beliefs in the cosmos, which are connected to all beliefs of the nations, the interconnectivity in it, and love our own faith, our own good, our own self-worth, right? We shouldn't fall into self-hatred as Jews because of oppression. And we should feel good about ourselves and our own role in redemption, and, um, and see that that sifting process can lead to a purity of ideas that doesn't have its impurities still there, but a purity of ideas in what we've inherited. Okay, one more idea, and then we're going to open it up. From Pirkei Avot, of course, one of my favorites. Sifting is something we see here to find intellectual clarification. Here's what it says in Avot. Uh, perhaps this is probably the most famous Jewish idea, certainly Talmudic idea, that has to do with such a sifting process. There's four types of students, I think about this a lot in pedagogy. Four types of students that sit before the sages a sponge, <laughs> a funnel, a strainer, and a sieve. A sponge, which absorbs everything, right? Um, a funnel, which lets in from one end and lets out from the other. A strainer, which lets the wine flow through and retains the sediment. And a sieve, which allows the flower dust to pass through and retains the fine flower. Okay. Now, bracketing an extreme case where we think someone is perfect and has the perfect truth as a teacher, if we put our student, our our child, into a learning environment, we don't want them to be a funnel, right? Which basically anything that goes into their head, into their ears, stays in there, right? They have no deciphering process. A funnel just accepts everything they hear, right? We know people like this that anything they see on the news is thus truth or anything they hear from someone is truth. We also don't want to be a strainer where the good passes through and the bad stays, stays there. Um, Sorry, I skipped over, uh, I skipped over sponge. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Let me start over. A sponge absorbs everything. We don't want to be a sponge. Then a funnel we don't want to be, um, which just absorbs nothing. It, everything passes through. I said that wrong. I'm sorry. A sponge absorbs everything. The funnel, everything goes through. It absorbs nothing. The strainer lets the good pass through and only maintains the bad. And then the sieve is the ideal. The sieve is the idea here that the good remains and that which we don't want passes through. That's what we want in Jewish learning. And here, friends, is what I would argue should be an authentic Jewish approach to modernity. The Haredi approach um, says, um, modernity is bad, reject modernity. It's all secular, it's all liberal, it's all anti-Torah, it's all anti-Semitic, reject it. Modernity is bad, separate yourself, build higher walls. The secular version says, assimilate into modernity. Ugh, tribal, tribal Judaism, who wants religion? I'm completely immersed, the newest idea is the best idea. The newest fad is the best fad. The newest way to be woke is the best way to be woke. Right? Just say the newest thing, and assimilate into that, and you don't want to hold on to anything of the past. And then, friends, we see how we would want to educate our children and our grandchildren, how we ourselves, I think, want to embrace modernity, where we think critically about what emerges. Is this a good message or a bad message? What in this film do I agree with? What do I disagree with? What in this news do I disagree with and agree with? What in this politician? do I agree with and disagree with right what in this um in also in this Jewish text that's part of modernity it's not only what do we accept outside of Judaism but also within Judaism I'm not going to be a fundamentalist what here is a good message from this text and what am I going to reject our faith also needs to move into modernity it is a critical approach that we take to text and to modernity on both ends so friends here we'll wrap up we are to be like a sieve In sifting, we can gain clarity who is in and who is out, right? In in not a judgmental way, but in a moral concept of how we think about extremes. What is in and what is out in terms of the marketplace ideas? We can see differences more clearly when we separate one concept or one object from another. But in seeing those differences, how will we judge them and how will we decide? Okay, friends, I'm sorry for the long presentation. That was way too long. I'm going to pause here. Don't forget to unmute yourself as you want to share a comment or question or thought. I'd love to hear from you. If you're talking, you're on mute still. Never be shy. Please don't be shy. Are they able to unmute themselves? I assume you are. Holy. Hi. Hi Cheryl. Hi. Um, that was really
2: interesting. We, we, we say a lot of times though that our children or our grandchildren in, in mm-hmm. this is a complimentary way we say mm-hmm. they're sponges. Mm-hmm. They're, they, they hear everything, they soak it up and that's, and, and that's complimentary because
1: mm-hmm. they're,
2: they're retaining everything. So, um, the, the I understand why you're saying that that's not good because then they're devaluing they don't have the the methods to devalue or disagree with anything that they've learned but as far as a like a sieve and a strainer a sieve, I understand why you're saying, I'm not exactly sure what the difference is. That's what I'm saying.
1: Okay. Oh, wonderful. Cheryl, I appreciate that so much. Thank you so much. Because I I think that we have to think, bring in Piaget here and developmental stages. There are different stages to childhood development. And I think there is a, a childhood stage where we want our children to be sponges. Our job as parents and grandparents are to put them in environments we trust and then expect them to be sponges. We put them them in a, in a religious school program, a Sunday school program, or a day school, or whatever, or a, a family Passover experience. We want them to soak up everything. We don't expect a three-year-old or a six-year-old to be a critical sponge, to challenge their teacher as wrong, to challenge their parent as wrong. I mean, later that's going to come. In the teen years, they're going to have total rejection, right? Uh, likely. And that's also going to be healthy. That total rejection is going to be healthy as well for their process of differentiation from their parents, right? If your, ki- if your children don't reject you at some point, you've done it wrong (laughs) one might say and yet there's going to be another stage right hopefully by the time we're sending them to college they're in a stage where they are able to critically think now we know um, we know we can fall into thought patterns which are unhealthy where um, you know someone can say no wrong or someone can say no right now of course there are extremes where there are probably people who can say no wrong and say no right but in general how do we promote this? So I think you're right. I think that in the earlier childhood stage, we can only expect children to be sponges. And our job is to, be, um, is to, be, uh, uh, is to put them in the right environment. And I, our job is also to, um, uh, you know, what's the phrase that, that they say? Um, rather than, um, what's it called when you, uh, you, you indoctrinate someone? you um propaganda yeah propaganda but you you brain brainwash brainwash thank you so the opposite of brainwash is what do they call it brain vacuum or brain dry brain dry so what they say is let your kid be a sponge and then when they come home you're gonna brain dry them or brain vacuum or whatever it's called basically let them absorb it all and then you're gonna help them suck out the parts that aren't good so that's the way yes please go ahead
2: so then, then the parent or grandparent acts
1: as a sieve. Yes. I, I want, yes, exactly. That's a, that's a great way to say it. Exactly. That our children's job is to be a sponge, and then our job as a grandparent or parent is to then be the sieve for them. Yeah. Do you agree okay. with that? Do you agree with
0: that, Cheryl?
2: Um, I, I think so. Uh, either that or you put them in a – you have them in a vacuum situation where yes. – that everything that they absorb as a sponge is what you want them
1: to absorb. Right. Now the the challenging thing about immersive experiences, we know Jewishly that the most successful Jewish experience for children and adults are immersive experiences, right? That's the power of Birthright Israel, that's the power of summer camp, that's the power of, of retreats for adults. Yitz Greenberg lost that war. Yitz Greenberg thought we need more retreats for adults. I would love with the funding to have VBM retreats where we go away as a community and learn immersively. The funding isn't available for that. But I think he's right, and all the data is right. Immersive is works. But the problem for kids is that just as they are sponges to the good, they learn Birka Tamazon. They love their Jewish identity. They love Jewish socialization. They also absorb things that are really, really hard to remove, right? Things um, – that might be low self-esteem. That might be um, a Jewish idea we want to reject, either because it's a fundamentalist idea or because it's a secular idea. It, right? They're going to absorb things from their peers, um, which are hard to reject. So this thing, this parenting thing, is really complicated. Thankfully, I still I'm in the stage of a little problems still, of uh, you know we didn't we didn't bike for long enough, or he popped my water balloon, or. <laughs> and-
2: Shmuley, I I would say that the children only become critical thinkers after college, probably when they're in their late 20s, because up until that time, they Mm -hmm. are immersed in themselves and immersed on all of their experiences, and they are funneling, winnowing, uh, sieving in order to arrive at what they feel is their value.
1: hmm. Mm-hmm. Well said, thank you. Good point, Eileen, thank you. Someone else?
3: Hi Rabbi, this is Eric. Uh, thank you very much for this lesson. This has been very informative. I wanted to ask you, you. You talked already a little bit about the sieve, and I wanted to ask. You gave some great examples where, as a child, uh, Jewish learning maybe you know it's okay to be a sponge, but as you're older, the shift towards the sieve. I'm wondering if you can, if you've seen other examples in, in Jewish learning where the sieve is still where it's not like to maximize like how to learn jewish learning if it's not the sieve it's through another is there circumstances where maybe sieve isn't the right way maybe it's a different uh a different approach um whether it is like immersion like when you're going to israel and you're doing to you know whether it's uh Ah. uh you know your yeshiva or if it's strictly like you know if it's like a certain kind of jewish practice Mm -hmm. uh it's something else. I, I'm just kind of curious. Cause like I found it fascinating with the evolution from sponge to sib, but I'm figuring not every evolution is the same.
1: Yes. Yes. Right. Okay. That, that, that is a really, that is a really great point. And um, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to just think for a moment.
3: Hmm.
0: Okay, yes,
1: absolutely. So, okay, so here it is. Um, I think that this plays out in spirituality. That in spirituality, here's the problem for us modern people, or one of them. <laughs> we have trouble immersing. We are skeptical, right? Um, you, how do we immerse? If you've ever seen Haredi Jews pray, Not all of them, but a lot of them are so fervent in their belief that they have no question that what they're doing is true. And so um, um, the power of, of a spiritual immersion is so rich. Now, there might be flaws in that. For us, there might not be. Now, for modern people who say, Is there a God? Does God hear my prayers? Does this prayer work? And I have all these questions and skepticism I bring. I'm now unable to immerse in shaking my lulav and etrog. Unable to immerse in the sukkah. Unable to immerse in kol nidre. Unable to immerse in the Pesach Seder. Right? I can't immerse because I have these questions. Am I being too Jewish? Right? Is this true? Is this good? Now that skepticism is good and healthy intellectually but I like to say that our spiritual lives and our intellectual lives should have a separation. That what we do in Jewish learning should be different from what we do in Jewish practice. When I think about prayer, I should bring skepticism. When I engage in prayer, I should almost pray, now you might disagree with me here, almost pray as an absolute believer without those questions, right? Because that's the only way I can immerse. So that's the first thing I wanna say that this is not about, oh, going to camp or going to Israel. There are these big experiences we have where we can allow ourselves just to experience it, just experience it. Don't have to be critical. Right. But then I think the things that happen daily are, are Jewish spiritual practices where we can step back and think about them after, but when we're in them, we should immerse in them, immerse in them um, in a way where we are like sponges. We allow ourselves just to absorb what happens in them and then allow ourselves to unpack it after, right? Um, Imagine if we went into a sermon, because we might hear a sermon in the coming month, rather than going into it saying, is this a good sermon or a bad sermon? Is the choir doing a good job or bad job? Right, is this voice beautiful or not voice? Take off the judgment, take off the critique, just immerse in the experience, okay? on your car ride home or whatever you're doing, walk home, you know, you could say, ah, oh, let's think about that. Did, did that work for you? Was that good for you or bad for you? But in the experience, just be in it, just be in it. So that's something I want to say over there. Now, now, now I, I'm sorry, Eric, I didn't answer your question because you didn't ask what do I think you asked in the sources. Is there another idea that promotes the sponge like experience? Or
3: where they are the, the last one isn't, the most effective or the best approach. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Maybe that's why I should, I guess I was more caveat to say, cause cause in the fourth, you were saying the fourth one is the best one. And I tend, and I do agree with that. I just would imagine there are circumstances where that may not be, there might be an alternative approach. Yes, for, right. That's
1: okay. Uh, actually. Yeah. Right? Here's, not- yeah, here, yeah, here, here, here's, here's another idea. Um, Via hafta la kamocha. You shall love your fellow as yourself. Now, what that means to love a life partner means you love their good and their bad. Now, tell me if you all disagree, because this is really maybe a high level of love. But, or love a child, love a child. You don't say, you know what, I partially love you and partially hate you. You know, you say, I love you in your entirety. Yes, that's true you have flaws like me. Yes, there's parts of you I wish were different, just as there's parts of me I wish were different, as my child, as my parent, as my spouse. But I love the full part of you, even the parts that I don't like, right? I don't like parts of you, but I love the entirety of you. And so I embrace a sponge relationship to you, via haftarecha kamocha, Right? even though there's parts I might want to reject. And th- there's something really powerful to knowing that your parent unconditionally loves you, even though they dislike flaws. Your life partner unconditionally loves you, even for your flaws. And we see this idea in Jewish texts around via hafta That's what it means to, and love yourself. You hate, we don't, ha- we might hate a part of ourself, Right? We all hate parts of ourselves, but we love the entirety of ourself, right? This is a really interesting way to think about relationships where we expect loyalty. We expect, um, we expect unconditional love. Now, um, of course, there are extremes where that can be broken and a relationship needs to be severed. We need to have divorce. We need to have separation with a parent and child because of abuse or whatever the case is. We need to have boundaries. But I'm talking about relationships where we feel a deep commitment to each other, even in a very flawed relationship. And so here, we can be sponges with each other, absorb the entirety of the other, Um, even while there's a sifting that's kind of happening over there. We're going to say, I won't critique you. I will love the entirety of you. Yes, I will name feelings that emerge from me based on things that you are and things that you do, but I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to be critical of you like a sieve. I'm going to be like a sponge in how I relate to you, absorb the entirety of you. So again, I'm not giving you a traditional source there as much as a tr- Jewish concept and how it's played with. Okay, let's, we have 10 minutes left. Let's hear from someone else. Thank you, Eric.
0: Don't
1: be shy.
3: I was wondering if maybe uh, we could try to flesh out these four paradigms a little, excuse me, a little bit more because it seems to me, I mean, I love the idea of it from from Per Cavos. I love the idea of it, but it seems to me that that one person's sieve is another person's, Mm. what was the one right before it, Um, uh, strainer, right? Because everybody's gonna say, sure, keep the good stuff and let the bad stuff go. Yeah. But isn't it yeah. pretty subjective what, which is which? I mean, how, totally do we, how do we make sense of this in a way that we can, that we can use it?
1: I love that, I love that. Okay, so there's, there's a few things to say there. One is that I think this goes beyond Piaget and childhood development. In adult development as well, I think we all will say, in which situation will I be which, right? In which situation will I be with? Who do I absolutely trust their values? Who are people in my life where 99% of what they say I can trust is coming from a good place, is coming from a place of love, is coming from a place of truth, and I'm gonna lower my guard, I can hear their criticism, I can hear their ideas, and I'm gonna be a sponge in that relationship because I respect them, I love them, right? And where will I be a sponge, right? Where will I be a funnel? Actually, I've got to listen to this person in my workplace, but they're a Russia. This person is evil. I have, like, there's this person in society where, like, I really trust nothing they say. Basically, anything this person says in my life or in the news or anywhere, I'm going to treat as a funnel. It's basically garbage, and I'm going to let it funnel through. Where is the strainer? Where is the strainer space? Um, Where's the strainer space? And where's the SIF space? Where, oh, the good, and, the good and bad are so mixed up. And then get to get to Brett, your great question here, what are the paradigms we're gonna use to determine what is gonna make it and what's not gonna make it? What are the questions we're gonna ask ourselves to say if it, fills, if it stays? So let's use the chat for a minute, anyone who's willing to chat. Put in the chat over there, what is a question you do ask yourself or might ask yourself to say is this an idea i should allow to go through the filter or to st- or to remain anyone want to want to either speak out or type in a question you might ask yourself to say should i be skeptical of that idea and let it pass through or should i hold on to that what's a question in your head you would ask Hmm. Good, Steve. We're going to come back to that question in a minute. Okay. So one of the questions our tradition says to ask in regards to personal feedback, right? If you want to know where to get your feedback in the world, one of the questions around tohacha is, does this person care about me? If someone is critiquing you and they don't care about you, let it go. Let it go. If this person actually loves you, cares about you, try to listen to the feedback, right? So that's one question when it enters the personal realm. Do I want to listen to this painful message of something I might be doing wrong? Do they care about me? Is this about them or is this about me, right? Okay, then we have over here Lauren's point question. Does the statement come from a fair place, a place of chesed? Right. That's another interesting question. Do I think, do I trust the intention of where this is coming from? Okay. Now, for me, um, some people say when it comes to theology or religious practice, I'm going to shut out other faiths. You know what? I'm just going to learn from Jewish wisdom. I don't want to gain wisdom from Christianity or Islam or Buddhism or the like. I will partner with those people in Tikkun olam. I will be friends with those people. I will be colleagues with them. But you know what? I've decided my wisdom is going to come from Judaism. Okay? Others are going to say, you know what? I can embrace those traditions also. It's true. 90% isn't going to speak to me. I don't want to go confess to a priest. I don't want to go you know, to mass on, on uh, Christmas Eve. But I think there's some Christian wisdom there that I'm gonna to try to find, or I think there's some Buddhist wisdom that's helpful to me as a Jew boo, or not even as a Jubu, but as someone who likes some Buddhist ideas. Okay, we're gonna come into different conclusions there. How am I gonna decide which truths from another faith tradition are gonna be helpful to my Jewish framework, and which are gonna really be a foreign intrusion to the integrity of how I live my spiritual life? Those are gonna be hard. Those are gonna be hard. So Nona's gonna say here, does this idea ring true? Does it resonate with my core beliefs? Right here, it's going to be a question of personal integrity, a question of our own conscience, a question of our gut. Cheryl's got this question. Everything is so polarized these days that it's difficult to nuance anything. It's funneled. It's funneled. That, I think that's very true. Um, that, um, and I think this is true. That if I hear if if I hear an idea that emerges. From, from the opposite political camp, I'm going to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I can't trust this is true. These are people who are haters, right? Um, and there might be times um, where that's not a helpful way to think about ideas. And there might be times in such a polarized way that it might actually be helpful where we say, you know what? I, I just, there's people who, if, if, they, don't, if they don't reject X, Y, Z, I just, I can't listen to their ideas right now. So we're going to have to come to different conclusions there. I'm personally in a camp these days and, that I wasn't in a few years ago where there's some ideas I'm, I'm actually not interested in reading these days. Um, I think that they fall out beyond the pale. Um, but I, I understand people want to hear from lots of different places. Um, whereas on a faith level, I'm very interested in hearing ideas from people of, of, different, of, of different faiths. Um, so, so there's a lot more to say about that. Let's go to Steve's question here. Um, Is tikkun olam both intellectual and spiritual and inseparable as such? The spiritual mean being in the moment? This is a lovely question. We're going to end here, so thank you for this, Steve. No doubt, this point we keep coming back to is that our spiritual lives are deeply interconnected with our tikkun olam in the objective world side. This is why I I think that we should reject some form—not reject is a little too strong— We should embrace a spiritual, religious side to our social change work uh, and understand that without self-awareness, it can be empty. Without self-critique, we can fall into extremism. Without a spiritual nuance and a character refinement, we can miss our own work, which is interconnected with the work we want to see in the world. So I think it's deeply interconnected. And a reminder that Tikkun Olam emerges in Kabbalah from a place of, of of uh, the inner sparks, of the inner refinement, our own inner tikkun olam, which is connected with the outer world, and so I think that's absolutely right, and um, and I think your second point about being in the moment, what we call um, what we call a flow, or what we call mindfulness, what we called just a moment ago, spiritual immersion, right. That rejuvenation means immersing ourselves. This is the Shabbat experience, immersing ourselves in a Shabbat experience, right, that feels different so that we come out differently. And so, friends, I give us this bracha, and I hope you'll give it back to me, that we continue to reflect on the ways we walk in the world, the ways we are in the world so it can give us the capacity to grow and see more clearly and live more mission-aligned morally and spiritually. And miracade, sifting, um, is a way, and we saw through 10 different lenses, how it emerges Jewishly. But just to look at this last point from Pierre Avot, how do we learn? How do we filter? How do we hear communication? how do we receive in the world, bracketing the question of what we put out in the world. When do I want to be a sponge? When do I want to be a funnel? When do I want to be a strainer? When do I want to be a sieve? And understanding intellectually most commonly, from Pierre Carval, we want to be a sieve, accept the good and reject the bad, right? But there's other spaces we're going to have a different role. And to think about that, and when we enter a space, which, which filter? do I want to bring into this space? Have a wonderful day. Can't wait to see you all again soon. Sending love and bracha and all good vibes. Thank you so much. All the best.
2: Thank you.